According to the Pew Forum, 49% of the U.S. public claims to have had a religious or mystical experience defined as, quote, a moment of sudden religious insight or awakening, unquote. This statistic surprises me a bit, even though in the quiet of my office I have often heard about such things. Half of the people polled said they had experienced a sudden religious insight or awakening, which seems like a lot of spiritual activity out and about in our land. I'm tempted to test this out. Take a moment to gather your wits. In a minute, I'm going to ask if you've ever had a moment of sudden religious insight or awakening. I won't be asking about the details of your experience, whether it came in the form of a dream or a vision or during a trip sponsored by magic mushrooms, just whether you've ever had one by your own definition. So what do you say? Have you ever had a moment of sudden religious insight or awakening? If you want, and I invite you to consider this, make a comment below indicating your response. Those comments will collect, so check back in a couple of days to see if others have also signed in. You can describe when and where, or just simply say, yes, I've had such an experience. Centuries apart, the stories of the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Peter tell of their moments of sudden religious insight or awakening, setting them on their life paths. In Isaiah's case, it's clear that this happened in the temple, no doubt while worshiping. And it's a dramatic scene that he describes. Of course, the temple was a very impressive space designed to inspire awe and reverence. Here's what happens to him during worship. He had a great vision. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. The one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots shook. The house filled with smoke. Pretty impressive vision, right? By comparison, imagine something like that happening in worship. In Isaiah's day, the temple had been built as a space to mediate divine encounter, and the same could be said for Christ's church as well. Still, have you ever really thought through the implications that maybe the most important purpose of worship and doing the sorts of things we do here is to mediate an encounter with the sacred order of things? I mean, actually, in real time, open up a space so that God might speak to us in some form or fashion. No doubt you've heard it said, the reason we worship is to praise God. And so we do offer praise. But, you know, over the years, I've heard preachers go on and on how God just loves to be praised. Praise, praise, praise. That's what God wanted from us, and it made him just so happy completely demoting God into a narcissistic celebrity or potentate who just can't get enough of his fawning public. Actually, you likely know of some preacher types just like that. While worship is directed to God, importantly, it's for us. 
Authentic worship depends upon an intuitive understanding of what we might call the unseen order of things. We function in at least two different realms, the seen and the unseen, the tangible and the intangible. Whenever we start talking about spiritual matters, we're acknowledging the existence of this unseen realm as a simultaneous reality to our physical existence. When Paul says at one point that God is, quote, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, he's affirming that God permeates existence. As Marcus Borg described it, God is a non-material layer of reality all around us. There are minimally two layers of reality, the visible world of our ordinary experience and God, the sacred or spirit. Authentic worship creates a thin place between these realms, a time and place where the realms might touch. Of course, it's possible that such a time could be anywhere and everywhere, given that this sacred order is everywhere. I've certainly had thin places pop up in unexpected moments, in my bed, hiking in the mountains, sharing deeply with someone, singing or listening to music, even just sitting quietly in a chair. You might know what I'm talking about. Though you wouldn't have used this language, now that you think about it, you might remember a time of sudden spiritual insight or deep knowing or deep connection with this non-visible realm. It might have happened in a location you now hold as special, or it might have been while riding the subway. We heard how it happened for Peter one typical day. He was minding his own business in his boat when a certain carpenter from Nazareth gave the fishermen a tip on how he might fish. Lo and behold, Peter caught the catch of a lifetime. More importantly, the two realms of existence kissed when he cast into the deep and he was thrown for a loop. We know this intimacy occurred because of what happened next. Peter immediately fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Something similar happened to Isaiah in the middle of his vision. He called out, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. We might call these exclamations of humility. Whenever the realms draw close and we happen to be in the vicinity, one natural outcome is an intuitive acknowledgement of our relative place in the grand scheme of things. That's why both men fall into confession as a sort of knee-jerk response. Of course we confess in the presence of the Holy because in the instant that happens, we recognize that nothing is hidden and it has never been hidden. Everything is there to be seen. Everything. Hiding is impossible and it dawns that the unseen sacred order has always permeated existence, but we haven't cared to pay attention. Worship is a disciplined opportunity for these 
realms to intersect. This explains the care that was taken in designing this sanctuary and the care that we take preparing each Sunday. If you pay attention, you'll discover nuances in the liturgy and music that are intended to fill this worship with meaning and maybe even with the hem of God's robe. I have a singular vivid memory as a little child, really the earliest memory I have of ever attending worship with my parents. What I remember is fully expecting God to appear at any moment from behind the altar screen. When I was four, in a far less grand space than this one, I sat on the edge of my seat in rapt attention, fully expecting God to make a grand entrance. I would not have known or understood anything about Isaiah's experience, but by some instinct, the small child realized the truth of the matter. And I suppose I've been sitting on the edge of that seat ever since. How is it that you've shown up today? Why do we bother with this? What do we expect to find and how do we find it? Will the preacher give up what we want? Will the music and imagery surprise and enlighten? Or perhaps silence holds the mystery. Those who are practiced in these matters know that spiritual experience is often best described as a still small voice that's heard in the simple routine of gathering with others in humble acknowledgement that nothing is hidden and that it never has been hidden, that everything is there to be seen, everything. Hiding is impossible. The unseen sacred order permeates existence and in worship, we care to pay attention. When Martin Luther King Jr. assumed leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, harassment and death threats began immediately. After one extremely tense day, he tells of sitting, staring at an untouched cup of coffee, trying to think of a way out. In the next room lay his sleeping wife along with their newborn daughter. He reports, and I sat at the table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me at any minute. And I started thinking about the dedicated, devoted wife who was over there asleep. And I got to the point that I, I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm, I'm faltering, I'm losing courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on, 
He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Religion had to become real to me, and I had to know God for myself. That was the moment King launched into the deep. Perhaps in a manner like Peter at the lakeshore, he had toiled all day and caught nothing. He heard God's voice say, try it again, only this time go way out to the deep water. Let down your net there. Friends, to know God for oneself is to launch out into the deep. We are all invited there. And there's no special time to receive the invitation. Peter and his friends heard this while engaged in their mundane work. Martin King's story is dramatic in its context, but the fundamental issue is the same. Centuries before, Isaiah heard God's voice in worship, causing him to proclaim, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Religion had to become real to me. I had to know God for myself. I have toiled the whole night and taken nothing. And Jesus says, put out into the deep water. Let down your nets there. And the seraphs called to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. 